You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with uh, Rand Fishkin, who is the author of this wonderful memoir, Lost and Founder. He's the founder of Moz and also the founder of Spark Turo more recently, and has written a ton of stuff right about SEO, about all sorts of things, life as an entrepreneur, blogs quite a bit. Even on Moz's site, I noticed a lot of the older blogs that you had written are still up and, and out there. But I, in particular, enjoyed reading this memoir. I, I'm a big consumer of memoirs. If I was driving, I would have tried to get this on on audio so I could listen to it. And then usually you get an actor who reads it. And then I would, when I feel meet you, I'm like, hey, you don't sound like yourself. You know? Good news. Penguin Random House decided that my voice was good enough to record my own book. And so it's really <sighs> me reading the book. Darn. I, now I really wish that I had gotten it on audio, but welcome, Rand. This book, you call it a painfully honest field guide to the startup world. And in there, you have a lot of what, what you call call pro tips. And what I like about this is that when students are exposed or you know, potential entrepreneurs are exposed to people who have experience in the business, I think they often get a very rose-tinted picture of what it's like to be a founder. When we invite people to come and speak at the school, you know, it's usually we go for the people who have had the biggest companies that have blown up. And usually they'll talk about, oh, it was, you know, difficult at the beginning, but then everything opened up. And and so I, I thought that was great about this book is that, you know, you, you talk about, hey, this is a difficult life, right? There's a lot that goes into it and there's a lot that no one's ever going to tell you. And that's kind of, was that the motivation for writing the book? It was certainly one of the big motivations. I think the other big one was the frustration with survivorship bias and frankly, no offense intended, but the venture capital world's propaganda around how entrepreneurship can work, should work, has to work. My my sort of ongoing infuriation with that culture is especially Silicon Valley tech culture around so many issues, but in particular, this idea that if you don't raise venture capital, try and build a unicorn or die trying, you're not playing with the big kids. You're a intentionally pejorative lifestyle business. And they use all sorts of tactics to insult and demean entrepreneurs and small businesses and folks who participate in ecosystems that are not directly helping their portfolios make money. And that's, it's very transparent once you get outside of it, but it's really hard to see from the inside. You mentioned in the book that when you first start getting venture capital, you actually learned quite a bit because the, the venture capitalists, they taught you a lot about building and growing a business. You know, there's a lot of pressure on you, but there was a lot of kind of knowledge transfer. Absolutely. I think it's a, that ecosystem is designed to sort of help elevate and absolutely educate in a very particular kind of way, entrepreneurs and, and founders, and also teams and boards of directors and folks who participate in that ecosystem through all sides. We have people who teach classes at colleges and, and professors, folks in the science fields, folks in accounting and legal and software and support services. It is a big, powerful, multi-trillion dollar ecosystem and has a commensurate cultural pull attached to it. So do you think that kind of mythology that is being 
perpetuated by the kind of venture capital universe. Is the main kind of negative consequence of that an oversupply of folks who are chasing after this dream? Is it that the goal is to make people overconfident and overestimate their probability of success? And so that you just suck in a lot of, a lot of intelligent people and a lot of effort, even though the the prospects might be more grueling than they anticipate? Yeah, I think that there are three outcomes that I really dislike from the venture backed world. Those are, it's tough to put them in any order. So this is in no order particularly, but the first one is biasing entrepreneurs and founders and people who want to join startups and participate in that ecosystem just as employees or or as customers even, that there is one correct way to build a company, right? And that way is to raise you know, a seed round and a series A and a series B and a series C and a series D and go public or get acquired for something north of $500 million or a billion dollars and, and become a unicorn or to make that attempt and die trying. And I don't mean die personally, but to sacrifice much of your time, energy, attention, the rest of your life in pursuit of trying to become one of those because that is the, the sort of only worthwhile goal. So that's one outcome I really dislike. I disagree fundamentally with both sides of that equation, right? That A, there's only one way to do it, and that's the venture way. And B, that that is a worthwhile trade in terms of one's life and effort. And that entrepreneurial success at venture scale is the most correct or most laudatory and worthy of the goals. The second outcome I really dislike is the massive way in which it furthers income inequality, right? So I mean that a little bit less in the way that it's often brought up in politics, where it's sort of individual income inequality, and a little bit more in the way that macroeconomists might look at it in business outcomes, right? So essentially, Google and Facebook and Amazon exist because they were able to yes, create a lot of value, but also suck a ton of the wind and oxygen out of the room in terms of small and medium businesses that previously existed, and even multiple large companies that existed and were competitive in a market. And I think that those competitive markets lead to more innovation, they lead to more employment, they lead to more people having more job opportunities, they lead to a greater distribution of the wealth rather than a concentration of wealth because monopolies fundamentally concentrate wealth. And unfortunately, venture capitalists are sort of looking for, for monopolies, right? They want to fund companies that have the potential to become monopolies in their space, not just market leaders, but 50, 60, 70 plus percent ownership in that space and preferably in very big spaces. So the incentives kind of suck for the rest of society. That's the second one. And then the third one, of course, is who gets funding. And it is, Gregory, you know this, almost exclusively people who look like you and I. I'm still waiting for my first check. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, and, and it is brutal. I mean, we are talking about more, more funding going to men named John over the last 20 years than all women combined. We are talking about less than 1% of all venture funding going to any founding team with a black team member. <laughs> um, we are talking about boards of directors that are 85% plus men. And that that's not just true for the boards of directors of the companies that are invested in, but also of the venture capitalists themselves, right? Which is an incredibly white and Asian male dominated culture and very geographically specific, almost exclusively a few hotspots sort of Silicon Valley, New York, Boston, London. 
And one of the ways that this manifests itself, you talk about the math, right? The math that the VCs go through, which is they expect the majority of their investments to go south. And so the ones that are left, they really need them to be hits out of the ballpark, so to speak. And so they're not content to take a 2x or a 3x return on, on their investment. Do you think that there's a model out there where you could maybe have a higher hit rate with lesser returns? Or is it necessarily, since everything's going to be a, a monopoly or a failure, you, you know, that's, that's a logic that, that makes sense for the VCs to pursue? Is there an alternative kind of? I, yeah. So I, I obviously believe that there is, and, and plenty of folks have modeled this out. Folks who are in alternative forms of capital, ClearBank and Earnest VC and Village Capital and Indie.VC and Tiny Seed Fund and lots more angels and, and folks like that, right, have, have essentially said, what if instead of 98% of the companies that we invest in failing, what if it's more like the restaurant industry's success rate and only half of them fail? Could we conceivably build a portfolio that is more right, broadly successful and they don't need to be 10x or 50x exits, they can be lots of 2 to 5x exits? Or what if they don't need to exit? What if they pay dividends when they have profits? What if that's how the fund makes money, right? So the, these kinds of alternatives are emerging, but only in the last few years, there's still an incredibly tiny sector of this you know, broader ecosystem. And very few entrepreneurs are aware of them. Very few people talk about those in the same breath that they do venture capital. I think that's a mistake. I think that we should be looking at those kinds of alternatives. And I'm also, I think the venture capital field is very scared because when they look across all the venture capital portfolios, only 5% of venture funds meet their return targets. You take any 15-year period and you look at all the venture funds out there, 5% meet their target returns, which is essentially, it's a little over 3x, I think, of, of how much they raise from their LPs. Then you've got another 15% that are doing 2 to 3x, so almost meeting their target requirements, but not quite beating what would have happened if the LPs had put the money into the public markets, for example. And then you have a bunch that are 0 to 2x, and they're you know, really not, not meeting it at all. What's weird? Many venture capitalists are able to convince their LPs that their next fund will be different. And some of them are right because it's kind of a crapshoot. If you get into whatever it is, Uber or Airbnb or Facebook or something, yeah, you could absolutely, that one company could make up for 300 bad investments that you made. You know what's so weird about this? When we talk about, oh, one success makes up for 300 bad investments, that's 300 founding teams who had a really bad bunch of years, right? They worked their tails off. They probably sacrificed a ton of things. They probably convinced a ton of people to join those companies and, and build them with them. And those people also were paid less than market rates and took stock options and didn't have much of a return. And they all built products that their customers now can't use. It's just a lot of really nasty outcomes. So the whole model, I just don't like it at all. I'm not sure exactly how venture capitalists are like, yeah. I like doing this. Well, I understand why venture capitalists do it, but I don't understand as much why the LPs do it because you're absolutely right. The returns to, to the LPs is surprisingly low. And I think when you talk to the LPs themselves, even very sophisticated ones at pension funds, I don't think they really understand the returns of their investments. To be fair to those folks, right? The, the savviness and levels of charisma and social capital and 
network effects and old boys club on upon old boys club upon old boys club that is built up around the venture industry can be pretty hard to see through, right? So if I'm a pension fund for whatever, a firefighters fund, or I'm a you know wealthy individual family fund, and I see this impressive investment group coming to me, and they've got all these whatever things on their CV that make them sound super credible, and they talk about how they've you know got this exciting portfolio, and gosh, it's kind of sexy and fun to be in it, and lots and lots of people are, and boy, you know, it would be great to have our money participating in these sorts of exciting ecosystems that get lots of press and coverage. And there's, I think a lot of it is prestige and non-purely financial, purely logical considerations. So you can understand what happens. Well, as a founder, taking VC money might be problematic, but it's certainly not as bad as your original method of financing (laughs) a business. And you start off the book describing your early days as as an entrepreneur and and how you know you dropped out of college like other folks like Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates. You're in good company. But you know, tell us a little bit about that experience. Cause I think that was clearly a very important experience in your life and helped to shape a lot of everything that came afterwards. By the way, did you ultimately pay back all that debt? I'm presuming you did not file for bankruptcy and, and actually managed to Yeah, we didn't file for bankruptcy. I mean Realistically, we, we could and should have. That would have been the logical move. For folks who are listening and don't have context, my mom and I started the, the business that eventually became Moz, which was now a, I don't know, 50-ish million dollar a year software company with you know, a bunch of venture capital investment, blah, 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 blah. But the early days of starting that were as a consulting firm building websites, and we made every mistake in the book, and we had you know, almost $100,000 in loans and debt that we owed. And then we stopped being able to make the minimum payments on a bunch of those. And so in six months or less, we had half a million dollars in debt because of the penalties. We should have declared bankruptcy, but we were, we were really scared that they would take my parents. My parents had bought my maternal grandmother's house. And they were like, my mom was super worried about that. And we never told my dad to whom my mom is still married that we had any of this debt. So there's just all these, just this insane pressure and and stress and debt collectors coming after us. And, you know, I was living with my girlfriend, Geraldine, who's now my wife. She was paying all of our bills and the rent. (laughs) And I was like, honey, look, I got us a bottle of wine because that's what I can afford to contribute to this partnership. And it was very, very rough times. We did not declare bankruptcy. We ended up, you know, my mom basically called up all the debt collectors and all the credit card companies and loans, et cetera, and made deals with them. Oh, we owe you 50 grand, but the initial sum was only 8,000. How about we give you 10,000 and you'll write us off. And so, I don't know, 12, 15 years, my credit report looked awful. I couldn't buy a house or a car or anything, but eventually things worked out. Well, one of the lessons, I mean, there are a couple of lessons that came, one had to do with your dedication to transparency and, and honesty. And maybe we could talk about that. But the other thing was that in those early days, you know, you had a consulting business and you realized very quickly that consulting is just not scalable. It's not fundable. It's a difficult business. And so you shifted to, to software or, you know, the way you describe it, you ship service. And then realized how great a business consulting really is. <laughs> well, t- well, tell us about that. Cause you know, when you talk about valuations, if, if, it's a, if it's a product business, if it's a SaaS business, right, you get massive multiples. If you're consulting, it's kind of hard to get any kind of value, really. It seems that way. And yet of my friends who have had successful exits, and I'm lucky to have a wide network of friends and colleagues, vastly more have become 
comfortably wealthy through their consulting businesses than have had a successful outcome with a product-backed startup. And that's no surprise. Consulting businesses are some of the longest lived, on average, according to US census data, businesses in in the field. So I, I think the average survival rate at five years for a company that either has tried to raise venture, uh, tried to raise angel that leads to venture, or is venture-backed is a little under 15%. Uh, the survival rate for a restaurant, for example, is about 50%, I guess 51%, 52%. It's probably lower because of COVID now, but that was true a couple of years ago. And for a consulting business, it's over 70, right? So those businesses, Greg, you and I start up a consultancy and we're making money. We have profits. We don't have a lot of expenses. We can run it for 20 years. And oh gosh, we sure made a lot of money doing that. And we can have a startup, you know, that we we try four or five startups maybe over the course of 20 years. What are the odds that one of them turns successful? Low, extremely low, just statistically speaking, right? That's how it goes. Now in your book, you talk about passion. You know, that's another thing that we hear a lot at business school. When people come in to speak to students, it's, you know, you got to follow your passion. And if you're passionate about something, then that's the necessary ingredient for you to be successful and it can take you to the top and you got to be passionate about what you do. And you maybe offer some cautionary words around passion and, and say maybe, you know, passion might not be a sufficient skill set in order to especially be a leader and to be a CEO. And you were the CEO of, of Moz for most of its existence, right? Was it five years ago you passed on the CEO position? I guess about six six years ago I left. I stepped down and then I, I left the company in 2018. Should students and young people follow this like, hey, you know, follow your passion exclusively or is it more complicated than that? I don't think that doing things that you're passionate about is a bad idea. However, I would say I think it's a shades of gray situation. And this is true of almost everything in life, right? The older you get, the more you're like, hmm, this thing that I thought was black and white has shades of gray. Hopefully we all learn that. The reality that I would say is your passion does not need to be how you make money. You can have a passion that is separate and apart from how you make money. And it is fine to pursue something that is financially rewarding and gives you what you're looking for from a professional, you know, sort of money earning element of your life. There's nothing wrong with that. Many people do it. I don't see any problem with saying, hey, I'm a software engineer. You know, my passion is, I don't know, fiction writing. Wonderful. Great. Use your software engineering background to give yourself a life where you are comfortable and write your fiction on the side. And, and maybe at some point in your life, the tables will turn and, and the fiction writing will be how you make your income as well. Wonderful. But you don't need to exclusively have one or the other. And I think that there's this mythology that is driven by a, again, that same element of Silicon Valley culture that I despise, which is that your whole life must be consumed by your work and your business. And that is, that is not only untrue, it's also counterproductive. The emerging research on this is that, in fact, putting 30 or 40 hours of very thoughtful, high-quality work a week into a project, into a company, is almost certainly both more sustainable and more likely to be successful than 80-hour weeks. And I don't think this should surprise anyone, right? So students in particular know 
that if you are well-rested and well-fed and in good shape and you've been getting your, whatever, eight and a half hours of sleep for the last week, gosh, it's weird how your test performance scores are so much higher than the same person taking the same test with four and five hours of sleep and all these other issues. And what is the job of a startup founder? What is the most important element? To me, that is make great decisions. It's not about, you know, did I write the best blog post or was like this email perfectly composed or did I reply to all my emails within five minutes or less or, I don't know, send a bunch of tweets or write the most code? No. It's did I make the best decisions on whatever, who to hire and let go of, where to contract things, what direction to take the strategy of the product, what to do in marketing and not. That's the really crucial part of a leader's job. And if you're going to make those decisions, you should put yourself in the best possible place to do that. And the best way to do that is to sleep well, eat well, be well rested, not overwork yourself. Let your mind do what human minds do, which is work on problems in the background while you are having fun making your meals or watching your Netflix or playing your video games or spending time with your loved ones. It's not just my advice, right? There's a lot of good science around this. Yeah, well, and the skills you talk about, making good decisions and so forth, when you talk about management in your book, you say management is not, is a skill. It's not a prize, right? If you, and yet everyone, when they work in an organization, they feel like they have to work their way up into a position of leadership. They have to work themselves up into a position of, of management. And so if you're an individual contributor, you're a software engineer and so forth, you believe that that's really what you're doing it for. I think in, in Moz, you, you made it clear that that's not always the, the path that you should be looking for. Yeah, this is a really pernicious problem across not just the venture world, but all of the business world, which is that in order to gain power, influence, prestige, in order to build up a more sort of a safer position in your industry, right? A safer position in your career, you usually need to manage people. And that that sucks, right? That is That is no fun. But I'm also very empathetic to the fact that's true for a lot of people and in a lot of worlds. So I don't want to discount or dismiss that. What I would say is that if you are the founder of a company, if you are the CEO, or if you're on the board of directors, you don't have to live that way. You don't have to craft a business that way. You can do what Microsoft started doing in the 1980s and 90s with their, with exclusively with their technical team, which was essentially they recognized, huh, there's a lot of people here who should not be managing anyone. However, they are very talented And if they're offered management positions elsewhere, they might leave. So let us create a track for individual contributors to progress in terms of their influence, in terms of their titles, in terms of the prestige inside the organization, and in terms of their pay and reward. And Microsoft did just that, and Google copied it. And Google generally gets a lot of credit for doing it, even though it's sort of um, more popular at Microsoft before that. But we did that at Moz and we said, why is this limited to software engineers? Just because they're in you know, high demand, let's do it for everyone. Let's do it for customer service team members. Let's do it for product folks and designers. Let's do it for marketers. Let's do it for folks on the finance team. There's no reason that that sort of an individual contributor track that upgrades pay and influence and prestige at every part of the organization shouldn't exist. It absolutely should. And I think that, you know, that experiment was something we started in the last few years that I was CEO. It, it started to go well, and then management's position on it changed after I left. But yeah, I still get emails from people who read that part of the book and are like, oh my God, we did this in my, even agencies, a lot of agencies have done it with their individual consultants on their team. 
and seeing that it has a, a great effect on retention and uh, work quality. Now, there are a couple other things that are standard practices in tech startups that you question, uh, one of which is this reliance on, on growth hacking, right? I think if you, you know, everyone I know who's in a startup is like, hey, you know, you got you to figure out a way to, you know, make the numbers look good and so forth. And you kind of, if you watch on, what is it, on Silicon Valley, the TV show, I think they have an episode where they, they spoof that. And then one of the other things is, you know, the MVP, kind of obsession with MVP. And you tell a couple stories about how MVPs can backfire and you really have to think a little more carefully about you know, your release and maybe Reed Hoffman's advice is not always the one that you should follow. Yeah, I'll tackle the latter one first. I have launched plenty of MVPs in my career. I have had almost none of them ever be very successful. And I have launched several, what I would call more fully baked, tested, high quality, everyone internally is worried that we waited way too long to launch products those tend to do pretty well. And I think a lot of what's going on here is the difference between an MVP when you are a tiny company that's just trying to validate the market and has almost no marketing reach or people paying attention to you versus when you have a bigger profile or you're at a bigger company where people are paying a lot more attention and you have a large mailing list and you have a lot of people you know, who are going to check out every launch that you do and see what it's about. And at those more substantive, far-reaching marketing campaign sizes, an MVP isn't just going to fall flat. It will often damage your brand reputation for a long time. One of the examples I use in the book is, let's say Tesla launches a really crappy MVP version of their first sedan, whatever that was, 2009, 2008, something like that. I don't think that's going to go well for that company. In fact, I think it probably would have killed that business before it even got off the ground. I don't think the Obama administration would have even offered them the loans <laughs> that they did. They had to have an incredibly exciting product, a massive game changer of a product in order to be successful. And that's because there was so much hype and attention directed toward them. If Tesla had been a no-name company with no one paying attention and it had sort of released its first vehicle to a few dozen of you know close friends and associates and it was a crappy thing and they were like, well, here's how you can improve it, fine. That, that's probably going to work great. And so I think you just have to consider which stage you're at before you decide how minimally viable is viable. And, and my, my suspicion is that for most companies that have any attention being paid to them, and a lot of entrepreneurs who do too it's a better bet to build up your marketing and get that you know, big email list before you launch and to privately beta test before you release and use that as your MVP, but don't let it out publicly into the market until it is really extraordinary, right? And so I frame it as an MVP versus an EVP with the exceptionally viable product being what I'm more in favor of in most competitive market segments. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you if you have to wait until the product is more fully developed, where do you get your intelligence from? You've got to you got to somehow probe your customer base and so forth. And I think in 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 the book you tell this story which I don't think I've ever heard of a similar story from anyone in your position, but I just loved it. And I think it was something that people should start doing. There should be even a TV show about it where you swapped places with one of your customers. I mean, first of all, like where on earth did you get that idea? And why on earth did this idea move anything past anything but just a drunken conversation? And have you ever heard of anyone else doing it? Tell us the story. 
Sure. Yeah. So this is my friend, Will Reynolds, who runs a fairly sizable consultancy in Philadelphia called Sierra Interactive. And Sierra Interactive was a, had been a Moz customer for a long time. And many of their consultants used our SEO software to rank track their clients and improve all their keyword targeting and that kind of thing. And so it was relatively late, I think, in my tenure, maybe about a year and a half before I stepped down as CEO. I, Will and I got together at a bar in Philadelphia. We'd been friends for a number of years. And we had this crazy idea to like swap places that he would go be CEO of Moz for a week. And I would be CEO of Seer Interactive for a week. And we were like, gosh, who else gets this opportunity to do this? So I, I emailed my board of directors and said, hey, I want to make this happen. And I would like you all to just give me the supportive authority to say, yep, sure, we'll CEO for a week. And it was kind of on a fun lark. But oh, man, what an intense experience. First off, just trading email addresses with another human being and living inside their inbox and having them live inside yours, that is intense. Like that, It takes a huge amount of trust and very, very difficult. Switching time zones was also really hard for me. I'm a crazy night owl. Will's a super up early kind of guy. And he's on the East Coast and I'm on the West Coast. So uh, that was that was no fun. But yeah, we did everything. We, you know, he went to some of my entrepreneur meetups and stuff here in Seattle. I went to his nonprofit board stuff and it was very full days for both of us. We both have had at the time executive assistants who helped manage that. But the the big takeaway that I talk about in Lost and Founder is the empathy for your customer. I got to sit with Sears team for a full week, build a bunch of relationships with people who you know, lived and breathed the work that they were doing with our product and seeing a lot of gaps between what we should be doing and what we were not doing and seeing why, why their consultants were at the time already switching to different products in the market. And that was a very eye-opening experience. I agree with you. I think, I think more folks should do something like that. It's probably pretty hard to get your CEOs to agree to it. But I think you could probably do it at greater scale with more people further down in an organization. You know, there's no reason that a marketer from Moz or someone from Moz's product team couldn't go to Philadelphia for a week and sort of do the job of a consultant there. And likewise, bring someone from Sears team into Moz's product meetings and engineering meetings for a week. I can't see a reason why that shouldn't be an industry standard. Yeah, I could totally see a reality TV show built on this, right? You know, there's that one with a boss. <laughs> it does. I think this is part of the problem is it feels a little reality TV show, right? It's like, oh, Rand moved into Will's apartment and or, or house and Will moved into Rand's house. And like Geraldine and I both lived at Will's house, took care of his dog and just the, the whole nine yards, like everything was switched over. So it was a little reality TV-esque. And I think I almost wonder if that memification downplayed a little bit of the raw business and educational value, but I cannot recommend it enough. I would love to be able to do it at some point again in my career once SparkToro sort of gets to a, a different point. Well, if you want to come and teach my classes for a week, we can work it out. But you talk about some other product development stories where empathy was a problem and then later it was sort of a, a solution. If you're in a company for a long time, and you're working on a product, you're, you got your head down and, and you know, you're doing what you think is the right thing. And then later you, you find out that's not really what the customers wanted. What are some techniques that you can use to you know, make sure that you really are listening and that you really are getting the right feedback and the right information, not just from customers, but also from your employees when you're a CEO? You need to get feedback. 
So first off, I think the power distance challenge inside an organization between a CEO and their employees is both harmful and incredibly challenging. I'm not sure I've ever seen a great solution to that problem. I've encountered it a lot. I've heard people complain about it a ton. I have never heard a truly prescriptive solution. So I think you're going to need to find another guest who hopefully knows more about that and, and has a solution. I experienced it tremendously when I stepped down from the CEO role. Within six months, the types of conversations that I had with my coworkers, rather than you know people reporting to me, was like a 180 degree difference. And it was relatively infuriating too, right? I, I appreciated the transparency. And also, I just wanted to grab them and be like, why didn't you tell me? You, you could have said something. And I don't have an answer for why that is, but I also, you know, I have a lot of empathy for folks um, in that position because I think that most CEOs, most managers are not making themselves as available or making it clear that the repercussions are far outweighed by the value of having those talks. So really tough. A way to circumvent this problem is to stay small. Almost never had this problem when Moz was smaller than 50 people. And I had this problem every hour of every day once Moz was over 100 people. There, there's a lot of advantages to a small company in this facet. I think this is one of the reasons, you know, Gregory, you mentioned like, Rand, you were so much of your career and your transparency is a reaction to those early years of struggle and near bankruptcy and that kind of thing. I think a lot of my Spark Toro experience is a reaction to what I experienced at Moz and the frustrations that I had with building a larger company. So Spark Toro is myself, my co-founder, Casey, and a bunch of contractors and agencies. And I, I love that. It works really well. Uh, your other question that I thought was actually an excellent one and that I do have a great answer for was, how do you make sure that you're paying attention to your customers and listening to real feedback that they're giving without having to go through like a CEO swap? That I have a really good, at least something that's worked really well for me. So Casey and I did a long beta for SparkToro before it launched, gathered a ton of feedback. We got surveys and interviews and phone calls and lots of chats like what you and I are having right now, demoing the product, like showing it to tons of people. And we also didn't trust ourselves entirely to be fully honest about what that feedback was. There's just the two of us. Could we identify all those things? So we hired a consulting firm called Elevate. It's heyelevate.com. Claire and Gia, and they, they basically analyzed all the data that we had from all of our customers, all the feedback and surveys and comments, emails, et cetera, and then synthesized that for us into, hey, here are your primary problems. And we basically spent like three months fixing those things up, things that we had not really seen or grokked fully when we got them as feedback and turning that into the product we eventually launched in, in 2020. I thought it was great. I would do it a hundred times again. Like, I don't think I will ever not do that in the future. It's just so valuable. And I don't know, maybe we spent 12K or something, but how valuable was that? That's like blind spot insurance, really. Yeah, it really is, right? So maybe you have no blind spots. Almost certainly you do. Almost certainly when you hire people, especially people who've seen a bunch of these before, who do this for a living, all they do is look at feedback and see, oh yeah, I've seen this type of feedback before. We solved it this way at this company. We solved it this way at this company. We solved it this way at this company. Transformative. This is, this is one of the reasons if I could include a new chapter in Lost and Founder, it would be 
why you should use agencies and consultants for everything. Just throw it up online. We'll yeah. find it. <laughs> I, I do. I have a blog post about it. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you talk a lot about culture. And if we go back to that blind spot that you had as, as CEO, right? And you mentioned this story about you had a toxic employee, right? Someone who was in a very influential position and they, they were toxic in, in a bunch of ways. And you never found out until after the employee was gone. And so th this was, I think, disturbing to you, not just that there was this toxic employee, but the, no one told you, right? No one, no one came up to you and said anything. You decided to make it, well, two things, right? You wanted to be very, very careful about who you hired going forward, but then you also needed to open up the communication channels. You talked about these core values and you said core value is something you're willing to, you're willing to sacrifice profit for them. And if you're not willing to sacrifice profit for them, they're not, they're not core values. So how did you come up with this, you know, the tag fee core values and how did you roll them out? And how did you, I had a conversation with Frederic Lalou. I don't know if you know him reinventing organizations. And he said, the role of the CEO is basically the one who holds the line, you know, makes sure that the culture is supported. So can you tell us that story about the tag fee and how it came about? Sure. And have you, by the way, do you have tag fee now in, in your new company? In SparkToro? No, we don't. Uh, we don't. We, Casey and I had a conversation about, I'll, let me tell this story and I'll tell that one. At Moz, in its early years, there were probably seven or eight of us, I think, when we first came up with tag fee. It was created by my wife, Geraldine, as part of a contract project that she did. Essentially, we, you know, I had read this book, Good to Great, which is a very popular kind of business book. It was given to me by my venture investor, Michelle Goldberg from Ignition Partners. You know, one of the things that was identified in, in great companies versus just good companies was that they have these core values that they live up to. You know, we decided, okay, well, let's follow this framework and, and build our own. And Geraldine essentially came, took all of the kind of work that we had done around it, discussions and topics and sort of making a bunch of lists of adjectives that we wanted to describe us at Moz and that we thought were representative of who we were and what we wanted to be in the world. And she synthesized that down into these six core values and turned it into the acronym TAG fee and wrote up the descriptions of transparency, authenticity, generosity, fun, empathy, and the exception to the rule. And those, yeah, those stuck with the company for a long time. A lot of folks in the marketing world and in, in Moz's orbit resonated with them. They were used by us in a bunch of different places. We used it in recruiting. So in how we talked about joining the team, we used it in our performance reviews. So how are you graded? We used it in decision-making around product and marketing and events and strategy and all that kind of stuff. So it was very baked into the organization. And then I think, you know, towards the end of my tenure as CEO, and certainly as new leadership came in, it became a little bit more of a plaque on the wall kind of thing. Because I think, you know, new, new leadership had their own values that, that they brought with them and they tag fee had been around, but it became more of an anachronism. And so I encouraged when I was on the board, encouraged the leadership to sort of come up with a new set of their own values that they thought better represented them. I, I don't know if that's been done, but I hope so. And it's a, again, got really a lot harder over 100 people than, than sub 50. But I would do it again if and when SparkToro starts to grow. But I probably wouldn't do it at the size that Casey and I are at now. It just it feels a little of the combination of grandstandy and unnecessary. You only have two people. And we're we're both remote and we're pretty comfortable with each other and you know maybe a little more mature as well so we have we certainly have a culture but it is a very hands-off light one and that's all that's needed when it's so small 
Now, towards the end of the book, you talk a lot about transparency. You talk about vulnerability. You talk about, well, you, you reference the work at Google about psychological safety and you know comfort with difficult conversations. But then you also tell the story about how you, at your, I guess it was your final board of directors meeting, or you, you were maybe a little too, uh, I don't know, impulsive or uh, transparent in the moment. How do you reconcile those? I mean, you, you regretted having behaved the way you did at the board of directors meeting. But on the other hand, you really emphasize the importance of feeling comfortable being who you are and expressing your beliefs. This is one of those reflections. And and for folks who haven't read the book and are are wondering what you're talking about, Gregory, full context is that, so I was on the board for several years after this, this one incident that you're, I think you're referring to, but the board of directors was basically considering how to handle letting go a large portion of Maz's staff, I think. 25% 25% or so of the company. And that was very painful. It sucked for everyone. I had never been part of a major layoff before in my career. And there was a discussion of how generous to make severance. And I was, there's no way to sugarcoat. I was a dick about it. Just, I was so sure I was right and that I was the morally upstanding person. And so I insultingly like pointed my finger at all my board members and was like, you know, you're a millionaire. You're a millionaire. Have you ever been fired from a job? No, I didn't think so. Moving on. Someone was like, okay, Rand, is this necessary? Is this? And I was like, shut up. We are doing this. (laughs) Move on to the next person. Insulting people, demeaning them. I don't know. Maybe it makes for good TV, but it it was really very off-putting. I think even if in the aggregate and in the abstract and at the core level, the board members agreed with me. And, and eventually they did, right? Like they went with a severance package that, that I wanted. That's not the way to build relationships or further relationships. It is not the way to treat people who are being perfectly respectful and are just expressing other opinions. So that is why I regret it. Not because the outcome was not good or that it, you know, in retrospect, it's like, oh, you know, Rand looks like the, I don't know, whatever. Bernie Sanders type (laughs) hero trying to give money to everybody instead of congregating it. And the board members reasoning was not, oh, I don't want to be generous because screw those people that we're letting go. It was, hey, we need to also make sure that the business has enough capital to sustain potential problems in the future. Like you don't want to let 27% of the people go with a generous severance package and then have to let the other 73% go in a year. That's not the optimal thing to do. This, I think it speaks to maturity. It speaks to emotional intelligence. It speaks to not getting your sense of righteousness confused with your ability to impact change positively. So talk about this, talk about psychological safety and how, how companies, particularly companies, when they get larger, how can they maintain this environment where people can have open conversations, people can debate, people can give each other feedback and, and do so in a productive way? I think first off that my experience here is relatively minimal and I'm not sure I ever did an excellent job with it. So I don't know that I have superb advice on how larger organizations can do it. I can speak to smaller teams and companies where you can build a system for grading your managers and incentivizing them to create psychological safety, to recognizing the importance of that on the culture of the team that you build and on their ability to be productive and do their best work and how valuable that is to even purely capitalist financial outcomes and how badly it can misfire 
when you have even one person dragging down a team with making everyone else feel uncomfortable or unsafe or unlistened to, that is undoubtedly problematic. And you can do this as a senior leader by essentially promoting managers and leaders inside the company who have proven that they create those environments for their for the people around them and who all those people say, yes, this person makes me feel this way. When I work with Gregory, I feel like I can tell him anything. And even if it reflects badly on me, he will understand. He will have empathy. He'll be forgiving. He'll help me find solutions. When I share and I'm in his presence, I feel safe. No matter whether that's something personal or something professional, he helps me to feel like I can share openly. And he helps exclude team members from conversations when they do not do that, right? So if we're in a group and that butthole engineer (laughs) is giving me a hard time, Gregory will call him out on it and he will make sure that that doesn't happen again. You can find people like that. You can promote them. You can reward them. You can incentivize them. You can make that part of their performance reviews. You can make it part of their compensation package. And you should. I think that's what a lot of this research has has shown. Google themselves have you know, really fallen apart in a few areas. One of, one of the areas that Google is just flailing on is artificial intelligence ethics. And they are getting just decimated for it in the press right now and in their internal culture. And you can see the environment that they created there and the stories that are coming out about it and just how far they fell, fell down on their own metric in this area. And I think that comes from leadership around that team. We went through this entire almost hour without even talking about SEO or <laughs> talking about the Google and Facebook bottleneck in marketing and kind of your your attempts to help people navigate that and maybe you know work around it. Do you see this as a kind of a battle between the folks who are trying to build businesses and the, these large companies that are, you know, more or less standing in the way of getting access to customers. Is there a way that people can build some bargaining power in this respect? Is there a conflict of, of interests between the folks who want to reach customers and the platforms that they have to work with? I mean, absolutely. So, you know, Google and Facebook's incentives, Reddit's, YouTube's, Twitter's, LinkedIn's, right, is keep people on our platform, only send them off when someone has paid to advertise to them, create more engagement and addiction over time so that we get more users and more of their time on that platform each each month. And that is what their boards of directors and investors expect. Uh, so the incentives are obviously at complete odds with my small business has a Facebook page, and we're trying to share content about what we're up to, and we would like to earn engagement and get people checking that out learning more about our small business. We do not have time to get into all the (laughs) potential tactics and strategies around this. But two things that I would say are, number one, don't build your home on rented land. Don't make your Facebook page or your Google Maps page or your Twitter profile or your LinkedIn page or your YouTube channel or any of those. Don't make them your central home on the web and drive people to those places. Use all of those places to drive people back to your website and your email list, which are really the only two properties that you can control. And even when it comes to email, I would not outsource to Substack or something like it. I would not build my web content on or behind Patreon, right? I would set up my own website and home for that stuff and then potentially leverage those other channels. That's a challenging thing to do, but it is 
incredibly worthwhile. I think you will find, you know, statistically speaking, you'd rather have one customer, one potential customer's email address versus literally 500 new fans on Facebook, because you will be able to reach that one person with relative efficacy and ease. You will be able to do marketing of all different kinds with that email address versus that Facebook that's going to get you, I think Facebook's average reach per page is 0.09% in 2021. So, Well, there's so much more we could talk about. The time when you could have sold the company and didn't sell the company, the shifting of the CEO position. And again, we could probably talk for hours about first-party customer data and, and all the rest, uh, marketing channels. But I'm just going to reference all of your blog posts. I'm going to send everybody over to the website but I, I want to tell people, hey, if you want to have a, a fun memoir, even if you don't have any intention of doing anything in SEO or intending to be an entrepreneur or uh, dealing with venture capitalists, I think it's a real human story. I, I would recommend it, Lost and Founder. And maybe if you listen to the DVD or audio version, you'll get to hear Rand read it himself. <laughs> so thank you so much, Rand. I really appreciate you uh, joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Gregor. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.